Thank you for tuning in to another episode of One More Story. Just a quick programming note, parents, if you'd like to skip past the interview and go straight to the first story, you can find it at the 27 minute 40 second mark. And as a reminder, we are celebrating Spooky Month and the second story could be a little scary for some kids. Also, if you're new to the show, the interviews are for the parents and the stories are meant for the kids. So with all of these disclaimers in mind, please sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's episode. My guest tonight is Rebecca McKendry. She is a director, producer, film journalist, podcast host, and an academic. She has a PhD in media with a focus on genre films and is a professor at USC School of Cinema Arts. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hey, how is it going? It's going. Dr. Dr. Yes. McKendry. My students don't even call me that. Like the the only appeal of that is like occasionally I'll drop it in an email and then it just reminds me of all my student loans. Um, but it's true. Um, but thank you. So I'm I'm very curious about your doctorate because, you know, I, I know a lot of filmmakers, a lot of genre filmmakers who don't have that. You're the only one. So what was the impetus to go back and get that degree? You know, it happened while I was working at Fangoria um, and then continued while I was working at Blumhouse. It takes a long time to get a, a PhD. Um, it took me like six years. Um, it doesn't take everybody that long. I was working full time while doing it. So it took me extra. Um, plus, I had a wow. kid during that time. Like it was just a while. I don't know what I was thinking now looking back at it. But um, when I started it, I was working at Fangoria. And what I kept encountering was that there were just not a lot of females working in horror at the time. This is mid-2000 aughts, like 2006, 2007. And I knew that I really wanted to be kind of like, I wanted to be somebody who, who knew what they were doing. I wanted to be an expert in the field. I wanted to be able to go into any situation and be able to talk verbosely about the history of it. And so as soon as I felt that I was missing an element of, of kind of my horror history, I was like, well, I'm going to go back and get a PhD in it. I like school. I'm one of those nerds who like just really likes school. So the idea of going back and focusing an entire PhD on it was really exciting to me. Like it's stuff I love studying. And so I decided I was going to go back and I did my PhD simultaneous to working full-time at Fangoria. And then during my last two years, I was full-time at Blumhouse. And so it was something that I definitely had to slow roll. But at the same time, that was always my, that was my hobby. It was like the fun stuff I was doing because I loved my subject matter so much. Mm -hmm. So like the 250 page dissertation was still a bit of a slog, but I really loved my subject matter. So it made it seem less daunting along the way. When you shot all the creatures were stirring, which was your first feature, right? Yep. So were you doing that while working full time and pursuing your degree? And had a kid. Um, so again- How do you- I don't know. My husband says I secrete a natural meth that like makes me really energetic and constantly, um, yeah, it's like, it's it's just this constant I want to do everything, um, okay. which is, is kind of the, you know, it's it's in a Disney movie. It's just kind of, 
I want, I think I've, I've, I have food allergies and I have had so many like near death experiences that I constantly feel kind of this like, okay, I could go at any moment. I've got to do this. And so it drives me, um, this constant energy to keep trying stuff. And so, yeah, looking back and I'm like, I was working full time at Blumhouse. I was working on a PhD. I had just had my first kid and I decided to make a feature film. That is so me. That is just so me. <laughs> well, it did take a while. I remember shooting my segment and then it took, I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about the process for your first feature because I know it wasn't the traditional schedule. Yeah. So um, the thing about feature films is everybody in Hollywood tells you to go make one. It's very much this idea of, oh, you want to make a feature? Go make a feature. And if it's good, I'll give you money to make a second one. And that is kind of how it's done now, which is wild times. Like most feature filmmakers, like when you look at a lot of people starting out, like Justin and Aaron, who I know have been on this show, Dave Lawson, like it's this concept of you have to find a way to make it on your own in order to keep working as a director. And I knew that going in because I'd been working for so long at Fangoria and Blumhouse. I had seen that that was kind of the current trend and it still is today. And so with all the creatures, we knew that we were going to have to piecemeal it together. We knew that we were going to have to kind of slow roll it over time. And that was in it by design. It is the reason it's an anthology film, because we knew that there was never going to be a time that we could all take three weeks off from work because every single person working on that film had a full time job. Um, I was working full time at Blumhouse, as was Dave, my husband. Joe was on, our producer was on other productions. Morgan, our other producer, was on other productions. Most of our cast was on other productions. And so we knew by design we had to create something that could be shot on weekends because every other person working on it had, you know conflicts. Additionally, we knew that the funding was always going to be an issue. That's always an issue with your first feature is how, even if you're making it for under 100000 like we did, Creatures, like how do you come up with that in a lump sum? It's difficult. And so we knew that, you know, finding 100000 up front might be hard, but we could find 10000 here and there to get the segments done. And then post became a whole nother thing of, okay, well, we can afford to do sound this week. So let's do the post sound. We're going to have to wait on color grading, but we can find post sound this week. And so it was this slow rolled process over start to finish. I think it took us 11 months to shoot and then probably 18 all in from the day we started shooting to when we wrapped post. And that is a, especially in the indie world, it's a really long time, but we shot it entirely on weekends. And so, and then post was very much when we could find time to take off from work to go sit in color for two days. And then when the funding was available and somehow we made it work and we all got it done. It was a lot of dedication. And that was kind of the biggest thing was there was motivation things because life was happening in between the different shoots. And so the idea of having to kind of rally the troops into the movie, like the nice thing about a normal traditional movie schedule is it feels kind of like you're hopping on a train and you're on that train for like three to four weeks and then you're off and you can hop on another train. With this one, because we did slow roll it over, it was basically like my crew would go off and do other jobs. And every six months, I would call, or four, three to four, I would call and be like, 
hey, we're going to go this weekend. And sometimes they were available and sometimes they weren't. And we just kind of had to roll with that. So I did not have kind of that same level of camaraderie as I've come to find on regular feature films where it's like this team and we're working together for four weeks and it's real intensive and you know you get this real collaborative spirit. We still had that on Creatures, but it wasn't quite the same because we had this ever-rotating crew, which was just part there were problems with it, but at the same time, it allowed us to get it done. And it allowed us to work with really amazing people who may not have been able to work if we were asking them to drop everything for four weeks and come shoot. Right. And it's, I mean, it's essentially the same as doing a series of short films. Mm-hmm. And that was it exactly as we kept looking at it as, well, we've been making a lot of short films. I think we'd made six by that point. And we were like, we're shooting them on weekends. You know, we're shooting one whenever we can afford it. Why couldn't we do this and cobble it together into a feature? And that was kind of the conceit of the entire thing. No, I mean, that's smart. I mean, that's you have to be adaptive to whatever your circumstances are. And and then you were able. So was was Glorious your second one? Then? No, I've actually um, so I've directed four features now. Glorious is my third. I actually did a lifetime film right after Creatures, which is the idea of, you know, you direct your first feature and then suddenly people are paying attention. Um, like I had done so many short films. My husband and I had directed a bunch of music videos by that point. But everybody wanted to see that first feature. And then after Creatures, I started getting calls for more paid work. I did a Lifetime film that I love. I think it's so much fun. And then that went into Glorious and Elevator Game and then all the ones that I was supposed to be shooting right now, but we went on strike. But they're they're, they're getting moving again. (laughs) Yeah, God, I hope so. So tell us a little bit about Glorious. I just recently watched it. And I had to look away at one point. I mean, it's the climax where he has to give the sacrifice. Yeah. And I just, I'm I'm real squeamish. <laughs> so, um, Glorious is, um, it's a product of the pandemic. I'll definitely say that. It is very, it's cosmic horror, which I know you've worked a lot on, like Resolution. Um, yeah. A lot of the stuff with Justin and Aaron falls into that category as well. This idea of existential dread of not knowing your place in the universe. Glorious is, it's very much a me project. And I have to hand it to Amp on that, that, um, and Joe and Morgan, my producers, the same producers from all the creatures that they, just kind of, you know, let me tell them what I wanted to do. And then they were just kind of like, okay. And then that was it. And there was a lot of kind of guidance along the way, but it was very much a me movie. My vision, my execution, my color palette, like my creature designs, like it was just, it, it felt like I was really able to control a lot of the elements on it. And I absolutely love the way that it turned out, which you don't always get to say as a filmmaker. So that one, it was just a beautiful experience shooting it. The setup is not in any way family friendly, and I know this podcast is, so I'm just going to say, well, (laughs) parents, you can go watch that one solo. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the interview is structured for the parents and then the story for the kids. Okay. So, uh, and and things are, I'm, I, I don't want to rein in my guests too much on the interviews. So you can, I, I, I always add disclaimers and things like that. Excellent. The um, then the general setup of Glorious is that a man has just had uh, the worst breakup of his life and he finds himself um, stuck in a rest stop bathroom after a really bad night of drinking. 
and a voice starts speaking to him from the stall next door and he suddenly realizes that there is something much larger happening. He's stuck in the bathroom and can't escape and the voice is telling him that he has to make this sacrifice or he will um, not be allowed to leave and all of humanity will be destroyed. And it gets gory. It does. So that was that was a big part of it for me is I want, I love gore so much. I love directing it and not even just gore, kind of just gooiness on screen. I like visceralness. Yeah, like torture porn doesn't interest me as much. That level of like saw-like gore. I love it. I will watch those movies till the end of days, but it does not interest me as much as kind of a more cerebral kind of otherworldly level of visceralness. And so, yeah, this definitely, it hit a lot of my sweet spots on that level. So what is it about gore? Because obviously you've you've loved horror your entire life. Yeah. <laughs> and so what is it for you? I mean, you are you seem like a very well-adjusted, you've got a family, uh, you're a very lovely person. And, and most of it... <laughs> well, but but most this is what I find with horror filmmakers is they tend to be, you know, pacifists. A lot of them are vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. Um, My family is. Okay. I would never hurt an animal. I would be vegan if I didn't love cheese so much. Okay. Um, no, it's like, but I buy organic cheese because I'm, 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 yeah, it's. Yeah. It's, so I find that fascinating. <laughs> and then they say, you know, comedians are generally miserable people, you, you know. know. My husband, Dave, was a comedian for a very long time, and it was my the darkest years I've ever seen him in. And as soon as he switched over to horror, it was suddenly like he became a wonderful person. I always say that we exercise our demons on screen, and that's kind of the biggest thing for me. It's the same reason I listen to heavy metal music. Like I listen to some of the most aggressive, brutal, oh my God, she's going to blow up the world type music ever. But for me... I'm going to sit in my car and I'm going to listen to it. And it keeps me from wanting to, you know, rear end the guy in front of me. And that is kind of, it lets me be free. It lets me be happy in life. But it does have this kind of, you know, release yourself to the universe quality with it. And with the gore, for me, it's again, a bit of a catharsis to kind of have that on screen that there is this kind of, for me, that is the catharsis of horror films. The fear is there. Fear is great. But jump scares don't do it for me as much as kind of, a kind of jaw drop moment. It doesn't even necessarily have to be gore, but I'm always looking for that jaw drop moment in horror films that, oh my God, I've never seen that before. Or this, the stuff that sticks to your bones, the stuff that will make you think the next day. And I'm always looking for that. And with the gore in particular, I find that there's an aesthetic to it. I'm like one of these weirdo people who watches really bloody horror films and find the blood to be almost like an aesthetic that the filmmaker is using on screen. And I feel the same way about special effects, especially like body morphing and things like that, like Cronenberg movies, something like Videodrome or The Fly. I look at it as a form of art as much as I do as a form of repulsion. And I find something beautiful in that intersection. I mean, The Fly, it is so revolting mm -hmm. and so, but it's incredible the craftsmanship that goes into it yeah and i will say you know you talked about gore being an aesthetic and and blood and, and you had quite a, a bit of that with poor yeah. gary um <laughs> in in glorious i mean i didn't like the blood just kept going i was and, 
so specific about the color too. Like that is something that I get really just meticulous about, like the color of how it's going to look on screen, the performance of it. Like, is it a thicker blood? How does it perform? How does it adhere to the walls? What does it look like after it dries? Because it's ultimately painting your entire scene. And so, yeah, that was something I got so meticulous about. And luckily I was working with people who were like, yeah, let's get detailed about this. So with everything you do, I mean, it, it's sort of exhausting just to hear. I mean, I can't believe that you did a movie, had a full-time job, and we're getting your PhD at the same time. But you also have a full family life. How do you balance all of that? Because you guys take big, long road trips at times, oh, right? Oh, we do. Yeah, we're big RVers. Like, that's yeah. kind of how I, we spend most of our summers. We will literally... It started during the pandemic, okay. um, where I bought a gently used RV <laughs> during the pandemic. And it, it definitely needed some repair, um, but it's what we could get. And we, I didn't want to rent one because we had ambitions of staying on the road for six months. And we did. So during the pandemic, as soon as the kids were online and I was teaching classes online and the industry was basically shut down, we were writing a book at the time. We had sold a book to Simon & Schuster. But at that point, you know, we don't have to stay in LA and it was crazy hot and we couldn't go anywhere anyway. So we were like, forget this, let's just go. So we got in the RV and we just went national park to national park because most of them were still open. And it was the only thing you could do was hang out outside. And we spent six months driving around during the pandemic, living out of this ridiculously tiny RV. And there were days that I thought I was going to lose it. And then there, were, it, but at the end, it was so much fun and the kids loved it so much. So that's become our summer now for the last three summers since we did our big pandemic tour. We've done the same thing where the day that the kids get out of school, we pack up the RV, we leave the next day and we don't come back until about a week before they have to start school again. It's just so freeing and we never have an agenda. Like we might figure out the first couple of days, there might be some key things of we want to see this and this, but we never have like the full two months charted out. It's just very much like, well, we know by Wednesday we're going to be here. And that's kind of it. And then we let the rest kind of dictate itself. And sometimes we're zipping around in the most inconvenient way. But there's just something kind of freeing and fun about having no plan, except at some point I'd like to see Gatlinburg and things like that. Right. Yeah, it's it's or some point we should swing by Aunt Matilda's in Akron. And yeah, that's that will be like our goal for the summer and everything else just kind of happens. And the kids are on board with it. They go with the flow. They like it. <laughs> are totally on board to the point where they miss it if we wouldn't do it. Like they get really excited about March. They're starting to ask like, you know, okay, are we going? Are we going? Can we start packing it up? We call it the RV of Cthulhu. And um, <laughs> like we start thinking about it in March and to the point where I start getting antsy because I feel like, oh God, summer's coming and I'm getting all antsy and I have to go somewhere and do something. And somehow we have adjusted to kind of this life on the road where I keep saying if I did not have to show up in person for class now and the kids didn't have to go to school, we would probably buy a much larger one and just live out of it, which sounds totally like hippie of me, but I just, we loved it so much and we found it to be just such a beautiful freeing thing. I will never homeschool my children like I did during the pandemic. That was absolutely nuts. I will not go back to that. We will stay in one place just to keep them, let somebody else teach them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but that said, uh, as soon as summer hits, we're out. Oh man. So how do you wind it down at night? That is always a good question. Um, so 
it varies. And I will say my son, my youngest, he has autism, real high functioning. Like he, he can definitely, he's still reading and everything, but um, winding him down is always a feat in itself because he literally, it's like he has a motor going constantly. And we love that about him. And that's one of the things that makes him so unique and quirky. But trying to get him to chill down at night is always a thing. And so he's really into meditation and Zen, which is weird to say about a seven-year-old. But they do it a lot in his classes at school where they use it as a focusing technique. And so um, he likes to lay in bed and listen to music at night. But then we always, always cap with a story. And so he always gets a story at night. We have now progressed to chapter books. So he's definitely into more um, advanced stories now with multiple storylines. We just finished reading A Wrinkle in Time, which I still don't understand. That's complicated. I've read that book so many times and I'm like, and he's like, I don't get it. And I'm like, I don't either, buddy. Let's just keep going. You're going <laughs> to love it when you're my age, even though you still want to understand it. Um, and then my daughter is now reading on her own, but we make her read to us. She's in fifth grade now, and if it was up to her, she'd just sit in her room and read her little, like, kissy romance manga books by herself. Um, but we always make her read to us because we still want her to be practicing. Gotcha. And then how do you shut your brain down? I mean, it seems like it's running a, mile, a million miles a minute. I'm a huge reader. So that's something for the podcasts that I do. I usually try to cover at least one book a week. And a lot of them I'll do audiobook while I'm traveling on the road because the drive from Burbank to USC is variable. Some days it's going to take me at 30 minutes and other days I'm going to be sitting on the road for two hours to get there. It just depends on how traffic is feeling that day. So I do a lot of audiobooks, but I always have at least one book that I'm reading at night too. And sometimes I might get, my husband always says, oh, so you're going to hit yourself in the face with a book again. Because some days I'll get three pages in and I'm literally falling asleep while reading it and I'll start like bumping it on my forehead. And then I'm like, okay, I need to stop. But I do the same thing. That is my downtime. I've had to force myself not to just scroll on my phone before bedtime. So I've had to make kind of a conscious effort to put my phone on the charger and stare at the book. Even if I stare at my phone, I'll be up for another half an hour. If I read a book, I'll be out in a couple pages, which is probably showing me that that's a better relaxation technique than just endlessly going through my emails and CNN. Yeah. And I, I think there's some hard data to back that up, yeah. probably. <laughs> true. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've just started a book called The Ruin of All Witches. Ooh. Yeah, I think you you dig it. It's it's about a married couple, and they both accused each other of witchcraft in New England in like the 1650s. And so it it does a deep dive on our Puritan beginnings, mm-hmm. and I mean it's it's kind of dense, but I, I like that kind of stuff. And so I'm interested to to see where it goes, but but yeah, they both. I don't I, I don't think it ended well for either one of them, but they both accused each other of witchcraft. So. I wouldn't think anything good can come out of that. But I guess if you know, <laughs> if you get accused and you know that your accuser is your husband, might as well be like, I'm taking you down with me, dude. Oh, yeah. he's a witch too, y'all. I totally <laughs> know he's a witch. Um, so there is there is a certain type of I feel like revenge inside that. I'm in the middle of one. Um, it just came out a horror novel called Hemlock Island about a girl who is renting out her vacation home as an Airbnb. And she keeps getting reports of all this weird stuff around the property. And she gets there and realizes that there is something occult 
happening in this house. Like people have been doing all these different occult rituals in the house and um, that there's something much larger happening there now. It's really good. I'm only like maybe 10 chapters in, like a third of the way through, but it just really picked up. All right. I'll have to check that out. Well, so before we get into the stories and before I forget, what are you working on right now? And also... Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So make sure people can find those. Right now, I was supposed to literally be shooting a film right now that got pushed because of the strike. And that is the case for a lot. Like I had, I was attached to a number of projects pre-strike and I still am, but everything got pushed. And so right now we have been off strike for a whole week. Of course, actors like yourself are still on strike. And so the industry is still pretty much at a standstill. Scripts are starting to move. Like I definitely have had phone calls from producers this week. Just check it in, see how you're doing. Just want to make sure, you know, can we get another, you know, a polish on the script and things like that. So it's nice that we're starting to see the gears move a little bit, but we're still basically shut down at this point. So what my husband and I did during the strike is the same thing we did during the pandemic. Is, is we um, we like to shift gears. And so during the pandemic, when we discovered that, you know, we couldn't sell scripts, we couldn't make movies, we didn't know what to do. We took an old TV show that we had never sold and we turned it into a graphic novel and we okay. retooled it a lot, but we turned it into a YA horror graphic novel called Pretty Evil and we sold two books of it to Simon & Schuster. It'll be out next spring. And I love it so much. It is just pure like teen version of Evil Dead. Oh, cool. And so um, during the strike, we did the same thing. We took another concept that we had um, kind of been at a standstill wise film wise and we sold this one's an adolescent horror and I can't say who it's through yet, but we were able to get that off the ground as a book as well. So that's what we've been working on for the most part is is we love the book world just as much as the film space and it keeps us working. I mean, you have to be versatile Mm -hmm. and you have to be able to constantly pivot. I know. I don't know if anybody out there thinks that indie filmmakers make money, um, (laughs) but there's a reason I'm still like working at USC and you know I had this lofty ambition of when I got to LA that I would make like a movie and then I would be like doing coke out of the back of my Benz and (laughs) now what you just it's not quite it's like that's not the way that indie film works I don't even think that's the way that like studio film works anymore that was very much like a 1980s belief um and so yeah it just it doesn't pan out like that. So most of us still have day jobs and, you know, side hustles and gigs and things like that. And you have to be able to pivot real quickly when when stuff happens. And so the mm-hmm. strike, it was very much like, okay, well, none of our scripts are moving forward. The stuff I was supposed to be directing is now on hold. What can we be working on in the meantime? And so we would go walk the picket lines for two days a week. And then the other three, we were writing books. That's great. Do you have a podcast currently running? Yes. So my current podcast, it's it's um, kind of a reiteration of prior podcasts that I've had. Um, and this one is with Elric Kane, who I've been co-hosting with for 12 years now. We've we've been co-hosting for a really long time um, through multiple different projects. But this one, it's on the Fangoria Podcast Network called Colors of the Dark. And uh, each week we kind of look at new stuff in horror. We usually will interview a filmmaker of some capacity. We talk mostly with directors and writers. We're very much kind of on the creation side of film. And then we also do a lot of like 
deep cuts, really hard to find horror because that's definitely Elric and mine's jam. Like that's what really excites us is the horror films that no one has seen or never got a good release in the States or has been trapped on VHS since 1982. Like that's the stuff we get really excited about. Awesome. We'll we'll have to check that out. Well, do you feel like you might be ready to dive into the first story? Let's do this. The word is... Bubble. Once upon a time, there was an elderly woman named Catherine. And Catherine, she wasn't the healthiest eater. And most people that knew her were surprised that she had lived this long and lived a good life because. She would eat a lot of candy. She still had all her teeth somehow. She was a real, she was like the Keith Richards of the neighborhood. And kids, I don't know if you know who Keith Richards is, but he is still alive and many are surprised by that given his habits in life. But, you know, she she didn't smoke, she didn't drink, but she just didn't eat well. And the one thing that she always liked to eat or chew was bubblegum and she sort of became famous for this because she could blow the biggest bubbles that anyone had ever seen and luckily for her she lived in an area that had bubble blowing contests every year at the state fair they would you know they'd bring out the cows they'd bring out the pigs and all the farmers would show their livestock and they'd have competitions to see who had the the best cow, the best pig and all of that. And they would have some hot dog eating contests. They would have some juggling contests. They would have a, uh, a strong person contest where you'd have to pick up a hammer and ring the bell kind of thing, you know, that they have at these fairs. I'm not sure what that's called, but anyway, They also had a gum chewing and bubble blowing competition. And every year since Catherine was a child, she would enter. And every year she would win. No one had beaten Catherine. And it got to the point too, I mean, she was in her 80s now. There were some really strong gum chewers in the region who would come in for this and they would think that they could dethrone Catherine. But every year, she wiped the floor with them. Every year, she blew the biggest bubbles. And no one knew really what her secret was. Well, one year at the fair, there was a little girl named Susie. And Susie loved chewing gum also. And she was fascinated by this bubble-blowing contest and she would practice herself but she was never very good well one year she got up the courage to approach Catherine and ask her what her secret was and Catherine said she has a couple of secrets her first secret is that she chews more than one piece at a time which allows her to get extra huge bubbles And over time, she's been working her jaw, and so her jaw can really accommodate this. 
And so she blows these extra huge bubbles with multiple pieces of gum, as many as she can fit in her mouth. And her second secret is right before she goes up to blow the bubble, she takes one breath of helium from a helium balloon. And she might be talking high pitch like this for a little bit, but she breathes in helium. And then that's what she breathes into the bubble because it's going to expand outward and outward. And the girl, the little girl Susie says, okay, this year, I think that you should blow the biggest bubble ever. I want you to show this town the biggest bubble you can ever blow. You've been doing this for decades, outdo yourself. And Catherine decides that the gauntlet has been thrown. So she gets up there at the podium and she shoves 10 pieces of bubble gum in her mouth. More bubble gum than can fit in any human mouth. And it's so hard to chew, but she's figuring it out and she's chewing and chewing and chewing. And she grabs a balloon off the podium and she takes a breath in. And then she starts blowing and blowing and blowing. And the bubble gets huge and she keeps blowing and blowing and blowing and blowing it. It gets massive until it's the size of the stage. And then her feet start lifting off the ground and the bubble starts floating upward. But Catherine can't let go. This is her moment. This is the moment of her life. This is her championship. And she starts floating upward with a bubble coming out of her mouth and she's still blowing into it. And now she doesn't know what to do, but she's breathing through her nose. So she keeps putting more air, more air into it. And suddenly she's in the clouds and everyone down at the county fair is just seeing her float away as she's going up, up, up. And next thing she knows, she's passing birds and the birds are like, what is that? And she's waving at them. And then next thing you know, she's going even higher and she's seeing weather balloons and she's seeing bats fly around and all types of stuff and parrots and everything. And she's floating all around the globe. And the next thing you know, she's floating up even higher and she's seeing weather balloons and she's waving at the space station and she's waving at aliens. And she'd been up there for a couple of hours when she decided that she missed everybody there back in her hometown. So she decided to slowly start letting the air out. And she opened her mouth just a little bit, letting a tiny bit of air out at a time. And it starts coming out of the bubble. And even at this point, if everyone can't see how big it actually got, she decides that she wants to go back home to her small little hometown. She lets a little bit more air out and she passes the space station again. She passes the aliens and she passes all the parrots and birds and she passes everything else and the bats and she comes back down through the clouds, slowly lowering herself down. And then all of a sudden, Pop, the bubble goes pop, but she's still hundreds of feet above everybody in town and she starts plummeting back down and she lands square on the high bounce castle in the middle of the county fair. And she gets up and she's covered in bubble gum, but the crowd cheers because she blew the biggest bubble ever. And everyone cheered wildly. And she stood up and she was a little shaken by all of this. I mean, it was exciting right? She got to float up into the clouds, past the birds, past the space station. She saw aliens. She didn't know if anybody was going to believe her when she told them that. And it was a pretty incredible experience. And she felt like she had kind of seen it all, literally, and figured it. Like she, she felt accomplished in a way that she had blown such a magnificent bubble and she had seen all these amazing things. 
especially the aliens, because she always wondered about that. She would see things at night, things that might be UFOs in the, in the sky, and she always kind of wondered about it. So at her age, it was nice to get some closure on that and some confirmation that that, that was a thing. And she wasn't scared by it. She just, she just thought it was kind of neat. And she felt like she really had an understanding of the world in a, in a new way. Because when you have a new perspective, and quite literally, she had a 30,000 foot view of things, it changes you. And so uh, she motioned over to Susie to bring her some wet naps, like a lot of wet naps, because, you know, it's like when you eat ribs and your fingers get sticky and you need something with some alcohol on it to clean it off. Well, she needed a lot of that to clean off the sticky gum. And Susie was so excited. She rushed over with the wet nap. She started to help clean Catherine up. And she said, oh my God, Catherine, that was so amazing. I can't wait to see what you're going to do next year. And Catherine looked at her and she sighed. And she looked up at the heavens where she had just fallen from. And she looked back down at Susie and said, you know what, Susie? I think this was my last bubble. And Susie looked really disappointed. She said, that's okay, because it's time for me to pass that torch on to you. So she started training Susie for the next year. And the next year, Susie came up to the podium and she shoved 10 pieces of bubblegum into her tiny mouth and she chewed and she chewed and the entire crowd didn't know if she'd be able to chew that much bubblegum and she did. And then she took a breath off a balloon and she started blowing into it. And the bubble got big and the bubble got bigger and the bubble got even bigger. And it got even bigger than Catherine's bubble had been the entire time, the year before. And it got huge. And suddenly Susie started motioning to people to come hold on to her. Come hold on to me, everybody, hold my hand. And Susie not only lifted herself off the ground, she took the entire town with her. And that town is still floating somewhere over France, I've heard. And maybe one day Susie will let them come down but right now, that entire town is seeing the world thanks to Catherine and her bubble blowing. The end. All right. Rebecca, are you ready for one more story? I am. Let's get spooky. The word is witch. Once upon a time... There was a little girl named Mandy. And Mandy lived in a normal house, in a normal suburbs, in a normal town. And Mandy thought that she had a completely normal life. But in her closet, in the very, very back, there was this tiny, tiny little door. Mandy asked her parents every couple of days, where does the tiny little door go? And her parents always told her, oh, it just leads under the house. It's just there in case the pipes burst, in case we ever need to get under the house. It's just a hatch to get under the house. And it was sealed up, so Mandy couldn't open it. And so she forgot about it, and she just lived her life and played with her toys. And then one night she's laying in bed, and all of a sudden she hears a knocking. And Mandy gets up. She's like, where is that coming from? Is it my door? And she opens her door, and the house is pitch black. Mom and dad are asleep, and she's all by herself. And so she goes and she gets back into bed. 
And then she hears it again. Nah. And she gets up and she looks all around and is it coming from under my bed? And she looks and there's nothing under her bed and she checks her windows. And then she realizes it's coming from the closet. And she opens up her closet, which is the scariest thing ever at night if you're a kid. But she slowly opens the closet and the closet is empty. It's just her shoes and her board games and her toys and her clothes. But she hears it coming from the back. Knock, knock, knock. And she feels like that's where it's coming from, the back of her closet. Specifically, it's coming from the little door. There's something knocking on the other side of the little door. And Mandy slams the door and gets back into bed and pulls the covers up over her head and she tries to forget about it and eventually she goes to sleep. But then the next night, it happens again. Mandy's in bed and she tries telling her parents about it and her parents are like, it's just to underneath the house. There's nothing there. There's nothing that would knock. It's your imagination. And her parents turn off the lights and leave. And the next night, she tries to fall asleep. But as soon as her parents are in bed, Mandy starts hearing it again. And she gets up and she creeps over and she opens the closet door again and the closet's completely normal. But coming from that tiny door on the other side of her closet, she hears knock, knock, knock. And so she doesn't know what to do and she leans closer to it and presses her ear up to it and she says, hello? And a voice echoes back, hello? And Mandy says, who are you? And the voice says, I'm trapped in here. You've got to let me out. And Mandy says, why don't you just crawl out? And the voice says, I can't. This door doesn't lead to the underside of your house. It leads to another dimension and I'm trapped in here. I need you to let me out. And Mandy says, but who are you? And the voice says, I'm just a kid like you. I'm trapped. And Mandy is really scared. She doesn't know what to do. And so she crawls back into bed and pulls the covers up over her head and she falls asleep. And then the next night, she tries to tell her parents again. And she says, there's a kid trapped in my closet on the other side of the wall. And it's another dimension. And her parents say, you are having some wild dreams. And they put her to bed again. And Mandy gets up in the middle of the night because once again, she is hearing, and she goes to her closet again, and it's just a normal closet, but there on the other side is that door and that hatch, and she hears the knocking again, and she starts talking to the voice again and says, why are you in there? And the voice says, I'm trapped. A witch has trapped me in here. And she says, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. And she starts trying to open up the door, but her parents have sealed it shut. And she starts pulling with all of her might, and the voice is pleading with her that there's a witch and she tries and she pulls at it and she doesn't know what to do. And so she goes back to bed and the voice keeps saying, please, you have to help me. And so the next day she hears it again at night. And again, she's tried to tell her parents, but her parents don't believe her. But tonight she has a plan. She has a plan. She's got rulers. She's got all different types of toys from her room and she is gonna find a way to pry that door open. And so she, waits to hear the knocking and she waits and her parents go to sleep and it's forever and she's just sitting there in darkness and she's scared to death and she's waiting to hear the knocking so she can help the kid on the other side of the wall and suddenly she hears it again knock 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 and so she crits up and she creeps over to the closet and she hears it again knock 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 and she calls out hello are you there and she hears a voice answer back 
Yes, I'm here, but the witch is close. You've got to hurry. And Mandy jumps into it and she starts trying to get that little door open and she doesn't know what to do. And suddenly she does and she opens it up and she looks inside and it's just darkness. She can't see anything. And she leans her head in slowly. Hello? And then suddenly she sees another little girl come barreling through running. And the little girl says, close it up quick. There's a witch on the other side. And Mandy doesn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden this witch hand shoots through the door and grabs her leg. And Mandy doesn't know what to do. So she shoves the door closed. And then she starts piling books up in front of the door, in front of the door, in front of the door. And she piles the books up and closes it as fast she can. And on the other side, she hears the witch howling that she can't get through. But Mandy has saved the little girl. And the little girl says that she actually lives in that town and that she was captured by the witch because she went through the door in her own closet. And so Mandy decides that she needs to seal up the closet and the little girl goes home to do the same. The end. <laughs>